0: Hello, Pod Pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I hope you're surviving the heat wave. Um, Some hacks that I have been using to make it through include uh, homemade iced coffees, having two water bottles on rotation, so one is always freshly cold from the fridge or freezer, investing in a fan, definitely the best purchase I've made recently and uh, resting my wrists on an ice pack while I type on my laptop so that my pulse points stay cool. You are welcome. Speaking of cool, my guest this week not only fits but easily surpasses the bill. She is the epitome of it, and that person is Sheena Patel. Sheena is an assistant director for film and TV. Her credits as a first AD include Casualty and Dominic Savage's upcoming series I Am Ruth. She is also third assistant directed on feature films such as Boxing Day and Pirates, as well as series like I Hate Susie and Apple Tree House, and she's represented by Sarah Putt Associates. Sheena is also an author and a co-founding member of the poetry collective Four Brown Girls Who Write. And part of the reason I invited her on for this season is that she's just published her debut novel, I'm a Fan, of which many people are. It's getting rave reviews and she was listed in The Observer's 10 Best Debut Novelists of 2022. I'm a Fan is published by Rough Trade Books and uses the voice of a single speaker to explore an unfaithful relationship and the power struggle within that, as well as how this connects with the wide world and our cultural obsession with status. Desiree Akavan has called it hilarious, heartbreaking and sickening, and you can get a copy via the Rough Trade website. When I was preparing to talk to Sheena, I figured that the conversation would be divided into two parts. But of course, when someone's passions coexist in a way that they do with Sheena, some overlap is to be expected, and we sort of oscillate between the two and find some surprising comparisons between being an assistant director and being a writer or performer. We talk about perseverance and how Sheena came to the television industry relatively late, how she establishes a sense of authority, collaboration and harmony on the floor, and bluffing your way through imposter syndrome, as well as how and when she wrote her novel, what the process of finishing it and releasing it has been like, and why she just wrote whatever her brain went. It was a really fun and also chill chat. I think Sheena really embodies that sense of harmony and calm that maybe she presents when she's ADing. And yeah, I came away from it just thinking what a lovely way to spend an hour of my Saturday morning. I think we're lucky to have someone like Sheena in our film and TV industry, and likewise lucky to have her as a powerful and, and critical voice in and of our culture. So I feel very privileged to have had her on the podcast. This is episode 112 of Best Girl Grip to begin with where did you go to university if you did and what did you study there
1: um I went to Queen Mary in East London and I did English Lit okay
0: um so like writing was always a a passion or a curiosity yeah I
1: think um it was that and drama were the two subjects Mm. I really enjoyed and it was just when it was the year before they brought in the three grand every term but I always liked words you know I read a lot as a kid and Mm. that felt like the natural thing for me to spend three years doing and actually loved it absolutely loved it as in I love the course but I had a horrible time at uni actually I really hated being at uni yeah it was a bit of a shock for me even if I was still in London it was just Mm. like like yeah I just it was a bit wild but I really enjoyed the course and absolutely threw myself into it. And yeah, I was just like, oh my God, black and brown people write books. so like it was a real shock. <laughs> and but then with film, like with TV, I think I watched my my, you know, Sunday night television was like a really big deal in our house, like Catherine Cookson and Heartbeat and stuff, which nobody under so we'll know but yeah it was like there were really big events in our house Mm. and I I think maybe subconsciously I was like oh I really want to work in something that my parents love and they love drama like my mum's an armchair director (laughs) it's really funny (laughs) I watch a telly with her but she's so they're really engaged with it they all Mm. you know they have lots of opinions about things so yeah those two those two worlds I really I love them and also like TV you know you're dealing with scripts and Mm -hmm. I absolutely I mean it's so nerdy but I like absolutely love it in line runs where people just quibble over like would she say always I don't think she would like I wouldn't say this and I'm like I love that Mm. like so the real even if it is quite technical and like like a bunch of builders essentially but there's that real respect for words and what the words mean and I think that's the thread between the two of them that but essentially like you're all there because somebody wrote some words on a page and I think that's just really really wild yeah it's even everybody always refers back to the script so it's like kind of that biblical sort of sense of like holy text kind of thing of like but it's not in the script it's like oh but we'll take it out or we'll put it back in or and it's like you have to you know if you change something in the real world it has to change in the script so there's always that reverence for words which yeah I guess I guess that's the unifying thing
0: it sounds like they've always coexisted as like dual passions and dual things that you're interested in but let's kind of go down the path of film first and I'm wondering how you started pursuing a career in film
1: well i was when I was at uni there was like this um career person, and I was saying, "Oh, I really want to work in the t v industry and she was like going oh, okay i I might know somebody." And it was, I can't even remember the production company's name, but it was like some real left field decision. But I was like, it's a foot in. Mm. <laughs> and again, it was like three months before the crash. I had like eight job offers at one point and I was like, was yeah. oh, just chill. And like, you know, it was just that it was about the job market was very chill. And then the crash happened and I was like, yeah. oh, that was the good times. Now we're in the bad times. So I was working part time in a library, which I'd been doing all through uni. And then I was doing this the rest of the time. Oh there's working work experience and then I was there probably too long but left and then started to kind of try to find jobs like any way that I could and worked in a lot of like reality tv edit suites I worked in for a couple of years and then then I started working in a cafe and I was like oh my god like well, this isn't where I you know and I was just like I, did, I didn't want to I did it because I had to so I had to pay the rent but I was like, God, this is, this isn't fulfilling me at all. And then I got promoted (laughs) and, but I, then I, it was like a supervisor. And I was like, to my then boyfriend, I was like, what is the equivalent of this role on set where you don't do anything, but you kind of manage everybody else. Mm. You're like, you're prioritizing kind of overseeing. And he was like, oh, it's an AD. And I was like, AD, I was like, I've never heard of that before. So I started to Google it and I saw a tweet from this producer and she I liked a video that she did for BAFTA so I tweeted her even though I looked like a Russian bot on Twitter. It I was it was like I had like 50 followers. I was just like, "Oh my god, I look like a psychopath." But um tweeted, like messaged her and uh oh, I did I did this um film but it was horrible. It was just like really low or I was just on the low lowest of low budgets of like mm. no budgets and like no care for crew <laughs> projects cuz I just couldn't get in to the mm. industry. I just couldn't get into where I wanted, like into the drama industry. I just couldn't do it because I didn't know anybody and I didn't understand how you got in. The so tweet of this producer had just done this awful film. Like it was a good film on screen, but it was awful to work on. And um she was like oh I've got some I'm starting a film. I've got some dates coming up in Leeds. I'll let you I'll my second will get in touch with you. I was like, oh my God, what's the second? Okay. And then a week later <laughs> somebody called me and was like okay can you come in the day after tomorrow and then gave me a bunch of dates the week after and I was still working or working places I hate so I couldn't do a lot of the dates because I was working um but I could do one of them like mm. the last one and I don't recommend doing this but it is what I did <laughs> which is that I told the job that I did that was on that a relative had died <laughs> so <laughs> I know you shouldn't do that, but I did it and I did. (laughs) What do you do to get out of this quickly, you know, Mm. without, without, and then I was like, but I need to pay the rent. So I can't, if this absolutely falls on it, if I fall on my ass, I need a job Mm. to come back to. I don't recommend doing that, but I did it. So yeah, I went up, I did, I did the one day, drove, drove in this battered Micra up to Leeds. The clocks changed. So I didn't know what time I should have been up. So I didn't sleep because I was scared of over sleeping so I was like are they backward forward I don't know and then I was like will my alarm do it I don't know so I just didn't sleep on my friend's sofa who lived like a city away and then I drove like in, I don't know you lived in Sheffield so I drove to Leeds it was a nightmare and I was sleep deprived I didn't know where to go and then the set that there was like loads I didn't know where I was or what I was doing or what what anything was I was literally mm. like just no words like I had none of the vocabulary and the crowd second, what I learned later was the crowd second was like, okay, take this table, take take these chits. Well, actually, I went to this talk from uh, the night before. I went to this talk from some, I can't even remember where now. So I learned the word chits. I didn't know mm-hmm. what chits were.
0: Hello, it's me. I just thought I'd pop in here because I realised during the conversation we didn't actually define what chits were. That's chits, not shits. Basically, uh, it's sort of like a voucher or a piece of paper that I think that you get at the beginning of a day on set. And then you get signed off at the end of the day to sort of um, say how much you're owed and how much you should be paid. Um, So yeah, that's what that means. So I was literally
1: learning words and learning things like a second before I was doing them, which actually hasn't like has actually prepped me for being an AD because that's often what you have to do is you learn a plan and then you're doing the plan. Mm-hmm. But it was very overwhelming. I don't remember much of that day. I do remember Bill Naye remembered my name. for three. So I stayed. So I did that one day and at the end, the crowd second was like, oh, so, how, you know, they asked that question. I say, like, so are you, when are you coming? Are you coming back tomorrow? And I was like, no, I've just been booked for a day. But obviously, you know, now that that's code for you've done really well, but nobody ever tells mm. you you do well. And then they gave me a bunch of dates over the month. But I was, again ad hoc so I didn't have a contract and I was still lying to that other job and then because I wasn't sure how long they would keep me on for so I was paying for my accommodation and paying for rent and doing this job but I was waking up at like four with complete joy in my heart like I was so happy and also I was with that crowd second he just he was proper old school but in a nice way and Mm. just taught me everything because I wasn't on they wanted me on the floor but I was like I think you need support because we had like 400 essays I might should have done I might have done better on the floor but I actually don't I think it was a blessing I mean might have gone further if I was on the floor mm. but I think it was a blessing to be. In, in the crowd, in crowd with him, because I just got to listen to the radio all day and like honey wagon. I didn't know what honey wagon was. Like, it was all these words that I had to just learn as I was going. I was like, what's well, a honey wagon? Like, that sounds really nice. <laughs> and, I, and now I know it means toilet. And I stopped like it's 10 nothing 1 to do with honey. <laughs> nothing to do with honey. I was like, why does it honey? Like, honey wagon. I was like, wow, in my mind, I was like some sort of animals in Farthingwood vision of what honey before honey wagon was. <laughs> Yeah. So it was uh, really overwhelming and terrifying, but I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But I, I did really well as a runner. I struggled a bit when I stepped up to thirding. In what way? I don't know. I just, I didn't get as much work as I thought I would. And I couldn't understand why. I don't know whether it's maybe because I actually don't really take well to authority. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do myself out of work. But like with the first, sometimes I'd be like, i there's a better decision and maybe Mm. maybe but and maybe you don't need that when you're like now that I'm firsting, I'm like oh my god I was so annoying and I should have just done what I was told like I was the most annoying person and I I would avoid me if I was (laughs) me looking for a third and I was the third. like I'd be like no sorry I think I'm fine (laughs) so I get it but um and I'm much happier as a first because I like setting the vibe and I'm in a position where I set the vibe Mm-hmm. But then obviously the pandemic happened and I had a whole year's, well, I mean, I say I found it hard to get booked for the, during the pandemic, before the pandemic, I had like, it was the first time that I'd had nine months of work and I knew exactly what I was going to be doing all year, like back to back work. And I was actually like, oh, wow, this is like 2008 where I I was batting away work. I was like inundated with it. And I think mm-hmm. that's when the industry was like properly, you know, I mean, it's still there, but it was just mad. It was like the first year it went mad.
0: What is the difference between a third AD and a first AD? Like, how do you make that transition from one to the other? And like, what are your different responsibilities in those positions?
1: So when you're, you're, so when you're thirding, you're like the ears, arms, legs of the first, basically. And really what, what the way that I used to third was I was happiest when I was thirding, when I delivered a ready floor. To the first. So I would always want to make it so that the first was just saying, turning and cut, in the sense of like making sure that the right cast were there, making sure the right essays were there. You make sure that when they're doing a line run, which is when the director and the actors and the producer and the script supervisor are all together on the floor at the start of a scene, they run through the lines together. So that's a line run. Um, but you would as a third, you'd always make sure that the right essays are there. If they were essays which are back, like background where you call them supporting artists, if they had any speaking parts or any direct interaction with the cast, they're mm-hmm. all there. So everything, all the Lego pieces are there. If cars step off, you've got a car waiting because you're talking to the runners and the runners have booked one or you know, you're overseeing, you're kind of managing the runners. And just making sure that everything's running smoothly, that checks, which are costume and makeup, know exactly what's going on. If they say, and you're passing messages, basically. So if costume are like, we need to do a costume change on blah, 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 you would know. And they're coming from base, but you need them on set for the next scene. It's all about timing. It's like, okay, well, I'll travel them in 15. because I know the traffic's a bit heavy because it's four. Mm. They'll come in, do their check and they'll be ready for the first. And you, you know, you'd go over to the first thing, what time would you need this person? And you work backwards from that. So it's a really, really hard job. Very Mm. stressful. It's quite thankless. No, it's just you're at the heart of everything, I think. Like, I mean, I know people say that ADing isn't very skilled, and it isn't, as in it's not like, you know, a makeup artist kind of thing or like SFX, which is like special effects. So, you know, it's having that kind of specialized technical knowledge, but you definitely need to be a people person. You need to be um, very chill just ev- and nothing is urgent even when it is urgent unless it's absolutely urgent which is like health and safety but the because everybody gets so it can get quite stressful. The thing that you learn is to be absolutely you're like an air hostess with a plane going down. You know what I mean? Like absolutely everything is fine, you know, let's put your oxygen mask on and you know go to sleep. Mm. And then, <laughs> <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. You're just kind of like you're just very, very it's like the between being a school teacher, a mum and an air hostess which just sounds like the worst jobs but when you're when you're when you're on the floor it's just yeah it's like hospitality which weirdly even though i didn't enjoy working in a cafe i really like hosting and i kind of feel like that's i like that so that's the difference and the first is uh the first will break down the schedule so we'll work closely with the director the producers and all the hods to break down the script which is to take the scene like the scenes and t- break them into their parts. So everything can be organized in a schedule. Mm. So you you take this story and make it shootable. And then you're looking after health and safety, but again, you're making decisions about the best use of t- best use of time of the day through the day. And you're just kind of letting the director know like, oh, if we get this shot, we'll lose 45 minutes. Like, is it really necessary? Cause we're going to lose time doing that big stunt at the end or whatever. But you're you're always the one that is calling You're not in charge, but you're kind of overseeing overseeing the floor.
0: I think that's the thing that's always struck me about the role of the first AD is is how hard it is. You know, they say don't shoot the messenger, but you literally are the messenger or the liaison between the director and the rest of the crew. So the thing I'm interested in is like how you go about navigating that relationship, how you... uh, like the relationship with the director, but then also how you go about, I guess, establishing authority with the rest of the crew so that they listen to, you know, whatever message you're you're bringing back to them.
1: So I've I've only been I was I was stepped up last year to first, and I was terrified. And I actually the 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 producer who was my first uh, who was my first before told me to do it, asked me to do it, and I was like, tell me why I'm good for the job. <laughs> I was like you tell me. Yeah, I was like you tell me why I'm good for the job. And you sent me a really long WhatsApp message and I was like, okay, so long as you know that I don't think I can do this and you think I can, then I'm fine, I'll do it. And I was absolutely terrified. Like I didn't know what I was doing really or what my role was. So I worked on casualty last year which it's such a good training ground and they're so lovely there. I mean, they're so lovely there. The team is so lovely and they really look after you. So they all knew it was my first time and, and the producer was really at my disposal. But it is terrifying. Like I'm a brown woman and I was, you know, even in that very nurturing environment, I was, you know, they're very they're old hands there. And yeah, I think that half of that, half of me being petrified was actually not knowing that I didn't have the experience to have the authority to really put my opinion across. But over the course of the year, and like, I was like, how do they time scenes? Like, how do they do this? This is magic. Like, I don't understand. What do you mean? And I would watch that. The producer kind of show me how to do it. And he's like, oh, you just kind of is a bit instinct, a bit this and that and the other. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this. I don't understand. But you do like I'm now. I'm like that's going to take two hours, or we're going to be twenty. You know, that's going to be twenty-minute move or whatever. You just know, and sometimes even when I'm on the floor, I don't know how much I know. I know more than I think I know, mm-hmm. and I think it's a very instinctual job actually. But I mean, as for authority, I do. I, it was a massive learning curve, and and I'm still learning. And but I think actually, weirdly, being tall helps, <laughs> and <laughs> and being a bit gobby. But also having that sense, of, like, I totally understand costume and makeups. Like, I know what's going to be an issue because obviously mm. I've thirded. So I understand. Like, I I did a comedy blap in May and there was like some, they wanted different makeup for the different seasons. And I was like, I 100% know they wanted full face of mm. face paint. And I was like, I 1000% know that that's got to be at the end of the day because they just, you know, it's so much easier to put it, take it off and get mm-hmm. them out then have a remnant and then make a full face up so you like know those things just from you know them so I mean I know that sort of stuff so you just know how to schedule that because I don't even need to ask them because I know what they'll say how I try to do it is not have it's not mine it's ours that's how I try to see it in that it's it's an our problem not my problem. so it's just trying to put all the pieces together so the most amount of people can be happy and then whatever mm. compromises we make, can we live with them? And I think a lot of it is bluffing, yeah, actually. Yeah, literally faking it. Me it's me literally that. faking it. And sometimes I'm absolutely terrified or I want to cry. And I'm just like, which is bad because then you shouldn't suppress your feelings, whatever. But it's just, it's just like, you have to just... You know, you just bollock your way through it. Actually, weirdly, and then actually, and then when you get more experience, you're not doing that so much because you, you have to start from somewhere. I think. And I was very, very, very lucky that I had such like wholesale support from a producer. So, any, I would just have him near me at the beginning because I would be making decisions, and I just wanted him to be aware of what decisions I was making. And and then towards the end, I didn't need him, and like I was there a year uh, on this job and towards the end I didn't even need him so I like weaned and and he made himself absent so I just have to rely on myself so I do feel like I was trained so I guess yeah it's it's just it's an an accumulative thing and everybody starts from a place of not knowing and I've Mm. you know since the pandemic I think everyone's very very fragile at the you know like all crew you can just tell like it's a very 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 hard time and I think the more experience I've got and the more comfortable I felt the more I just don't want to don't want to bollock anybody you know for making a mistake because often it's probably me not communicating properly and I've I did it a couple of times. I just adjusted what, and that's a place of authority, I think, is not shouting at the people that you're, Mm. that are working under you. Because I did, did, something went wrong on that blap. And I was like, I think it's because of the way I communicate the information. So all I did was adjust the way I, I spoke it, wrote it down and sent it and i was like it was the writing down and after i, I just made that small adjustment and that mistake never happened again mm. and um yeah and i was like oh actually this is like a much this this way is the more harmonious way rather than being like why didn't you do this you left this out so i think you lose authority by doing that and I just, yeah it's just like i just i'm just like i'd just rather err on the side of the nurturing side than the bollocky um. side because it just doesn't make a happy floor, and it's just not worth it
0: absolutely and you've you've picked up a thread there that I want to continue to explore and that's the idea of a happy set and a happy floor and and how you go about achieving that I mean you've touched on it a little bit with sort of setting a vibe and not bollocking people when they mess up and and maybe looking to yourself for answers but like how are you going about doing that is that something you speak into existence at the beginning of a day and just sort of say this is how it's going to be is it more about like actions rather than words and just sort of embodying that vibe
1: well I, I like harmony I prefer I know some people don't prefer harmony I mean, we've got some, you know, we've got somebody in office at the minute who doesn't like <laughs> harmony. <laughs> it was very disharmonious, but I like harmony. I like everybody getting on together. I don't, I don't like it when people get upset or if if someone's unhappy, I'd rather we all talk about it. Whenever we do a stunt, I'm, I, you know, I'll do like a, because I had to do COVID briefings at the last job. You know, obviously you had mm. to, and every day you say the same thing. which just like, stay so two meters away from each other. Don't kiss or lick each other. And what I do is have a fact of the day mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end. And then whenever there was a stunt or something big like that, I would include that. So I didn't have a safety briefing. I would make sure that everybody turns up and that kind of given the fact of the day, I would know if he wasn't there because I was like, what's today's mm-hmm. fact? And they went there and I was like, mm. and um, I would say, if you're not happy, say stop at any point. I'd always make sure the actors, you know, in whatever sense, I was always checking in with them and making sure that they were okay. And if they needed like a break room or a break or whatever, they could. Uh, On the last job I had, like somebody had a bereavement, so I was like, "Don't come in for the for first call, you know, come in for nine or whatever." Just, and she was grateful for that, so she had slower mornings, but then could stay the whole day rather than insisting that she comes in. And I don't know, I just, I don't really, I'm not like, oh, it's not a bullying, blah blah blah. I don't do that, but I will or maybe I embody it. And and also it's a great industry to be a part of in the sense of like, we're literally playing games. Like it's make-believe like it's a, like, it's silly. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's like quite silly. I mean, I know there's large amounts of money and like, you know, real, real effects and consequences, but mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, we're making telly. It's a laugh, you know? And I like it when I like, I like a flaw that is that, you know, we take everything really seriously, but we're having a laugh, but then you shut up when I ask you to shut up. And you know, if I say don't walk on the tracks, you don't walk on the tracks. And if I'm saying check with me about something, you're checking before this happens. And like safety, just making sure everybody's safe. We'll do my best to make sure everybody's safe. And if if anyone feels unsafe, it's stopping at that time rather than that's what I've there's something happened on you know, not in anything, but like somebody wasn't happy about the way something was going, and said afterwards, and I was like told the producer. So, I said in the next briefing, I was like, look, if anyone is unhappy or if anyone's feeling rushed, just say, say at the come come to me, say at the time, and mm. we can adjust it there and then. So, you're not unhappy for the whole day. Like, there's no point in that happening. And, you know, it's just mm. kind of not picking anybody out, but just kind of vibe checking, really.
0: I want to switch gears now and talk about your writing. And I'm interested to know whether that's something that you've always just done in kind of pockets of uh free time or downtime you know alongside your work as a first uh, or a third and, and first ad uh or whether you know it was something that you felt a desire to pursue and and you made more of a conscious decision to step back from that kind of work in order to devote to your writing practice you know how did you go about manifesting that
1: yeah I don't know it's just course what of happened I've always written when I was a kid I was always writing mm-hmm. And then when, like in 2017, started a collective with my friends, all brand girls who write, and we put out a book in 2017. Like we kind of did that ourselves with this other group called Femzine. And, um, mm. but we like, basically it was self-published, you know, it wasn't like there was an agent or anything involved, publisher. We did it ourselves, like found a place to publish, like print it and whatever like I did the cover. It was all very like homemade, but very professional because my best friend was, is a graphic designer. So it looks mm. gorgeous. It's lovely, but it's us. It's We made it.
0: And then- um, Is that because you wanted control over what you-
1: No, it was just more like, we didn't think anybody would want to publish us and we were writing and like, it's very, very rough. Like, I don't even know where you can get one now, but it's, it was just like, I want to make something and we want to make something and this is what we'll make. And it was sort of next to or underneath- my real job but it wasn't there was no intention of it It was just like no one no one's going to publish us so we'll publish ourselves kind of thing And we were pushing it on people not too much <laughs> not too much success but you know made a thing and got a quote from this poet and it was like really amazing to like just self-make something and then rough trade books we met rough trade books by I was pestering her on the internet basically Nina she came to see us perform and a couple of months later she was like I'd like to publish you And again, they're very like DIY style. So Mm. that fit our vibe. And then we put out some pamphlets. They came out in lockdown. They were supposed to come out in April, but they didn't, obviously. But they came out in November 2020. And then in the winter lockdown, I started writing because I was doing nothing. Not doing nothing. I mean, we're going through a pandemic. But I was, you know, at home. (laughs) I wasn't working Mm And it, like all the jobs just were being pushed back because it was just like anything that was starting, it was like, oh, it's now April, it's now May, blah. And I was just like, I'm never going to, and I didn't have any work. I hadn't, I was doing bits of thirding, but I was really unhappy. I did a job that the first just yelled at me and I was crying in the rain and I was like. I can't do this anymore like I can't be spoken to like this anymore like I just can't do this job anymore Mm. and I was actually thinking about leaving the industry and then I just started writing like I just wrote a couple of things after I saw the attacks on the Capitol I was just really disturbed by it and then I sent it to Nina and Will who's the editor who's her husband and they were like oh there's a book here like write the book and I was like what so I was so I had like a month where I had no work like nothing there's nothing going on And I didn't really, I was like, where, what do I, like, I don't know what my life will look like. Like, what will my, what do I want my life to look like? So I started writing. And then as soon as I started writing that first, who's the producer, called me and said, do you want to first? And I was like, oh my God, maybe my life is dying. (laughs) But it was just, it just felt these two things. I was absolutely terrified of saying yes to both of them. Mm. I'm not good at saying yes to things that want me. It's been a real rewiring of my brain avoid what doesn't want me because I was thinking no I can't possibly say yes to these people who want to to publish my book or this person Mm -hmm. that wants to give me this job so I said yes to them both and it was absolutely terrifying but so worth it like last year was a lot of hard work and this year I feel like I'm reaping the benefits of that Mm. hard work it was a lot of a lot of like being alone and not really you know because you're just I was away as well so I wasn't even in London so I was away from my Mm. life essentially which wasn't even that much my life but I was just away from like my friends my base my my family so I was like oh my god I'm just like this floating atom (laughs) dreaming and doing this job that I can't do and um yeah now the book's done really well it's doing really well it's exciting
0: just to provide a bit of context for listeners, the book that we're talking about is I'm a fan, which is your debut novel. Talk to me about where this sort of the kernel of the idea began, why you felt compelled to write this book, to write it in this way. You know, what what did you want to be spoken out loud? and And why did you feel like the person to speak it?
1: Well, weirdly, just like the job where I was like you tell me why I should do this job I was Mm. like you tell me why I should write this book because I was like I'm gonna take that on (laughs) yeah you totally take it because then none of the risk is on you because you're like well if I fuck up it's kind of on you (laughs) (laughs) I didn't I wasn't I wasn't it wasn't me it was you (laughs) which is the only way I think I could be brave enough to do anything because I'm actually quite I'm scared of everything but I do it anyway. I think I'm terrified, but I do it anyway. I like force myself to do things that scare me. That's where life is, I think. Mm. And I mean, that's obviously comes with terms and conditions of like, don't put yourself in abusive situations, obviously. But I think that when you're like, when they said, write a book, I was like, I can't write a book. I'm terrified of this. And then I was thinking, well, I have to do it because I'm scared. And when this first, and they're both very nurturing, very positive figures in my life. It's not like, Mm they're harmful so I was like I trust both of these I trust these two people in two separate parts of my life and if they think that I can do it and I respect their opinion and they think I can do it then okay maybe they're right so I didn't really think I didn't know what it was she said write a book I was like I don't know how to do this so I was like transcribing videos from YouTube from like conspiracy theorists Who like oh like these guys that would like infiltrate these conspiracy theories and like do these comedy sketches in there? Because I'm I was thinking about like conspiracy theories and fantasy and fandom and capitalism and class and race and you know all that girly stuff (laughs) and sex and relationships and love and unrequited love and ambivalence and I was like, and Vienna and. Argos oh and I was like how do I mix all these things together and I was like oh I didn't need to like I just put them together I don't need to formulaize anything and I just was like I just wrote basically I was like anything where my wherever my brain went I wrote and I was like it's not for me to decide what is good and what isn't good like that's what your editor is there for um but I was like I'm just gonna accumulate mass uh so everything was in I'd like describe memes I would like I had this whole chapter about Crystal Castles who I was obsessed with when I was in my early 20s and like how how Alice Glass was treated and like, you know, how the industry treated Alice Glass, how how the fans of Crystal Castles treated Alice Glass and also the other guy, the guy, how he treated her too and how scared she was. And so, yeah, I was just like, it's just writing basically. I just didn't really think about what is a novel. I need to write a novel. I mean, it's not really a, a novel novel in that novel sense. It's like, what I've decided is a novel yeah and then I just was like finding it through the process so but I was doing those two things in tandem which was quite insane and intense and but it, there was a drive to I was there was an overriding drive to do it mm. I did I i felt compelled to do it as I was doing it I found my own reasons for doing it rather than Nina saying just write me a book I, I found my own reasons to, to to keep exploring what I was exploring and then because it was so wide and sprawling, there was the editing process, which was like Mm -hmm. actually finding what, what is the story here? And then, you know, you kind of go off into exploring what that story could be. So it was like totally like nebulous and moving thing. It wasn't like, oh, I have a plan and this is my plan. I was like, I'm just going to find the plan as I go. Like there is no plan. The plan is there's no plan.
0: Yeah. In a way like the ADing, like that's very much how you approach it. And and you're doing it the same with writing, like well, yeah, actually, the plan as you go along.
1: Well, yeah, maybe I didn't think of it like that, but yeah, it is like it being very reactive. I think and being, yeah, exactly. Actually, those two things are totally the same. And having no idea and just kind of, yeah, like if eventually you'll finish the day. You know, you'll finish the day. It's just like in what state you don't know, but also you like. Mm-hmm you can't there's only a certain amount that you can plan because you can't you know you can say yes we're going to do these scenes but like so many things and so many people are a part of that process mm. you just kind of you've got to stay nimble and I think maybe mm. that's maybe I do think ADing and reading scripts and being around that language has very much informed this not you know even it's, there's an unlikable narrator and we're, we're used to that in tv I think in books they're very like what but I think we're used to that in telly and I think a lot of telly has influenced, you know, I, I wrote it like scenes, like the chapters, like the small sections, like scenes, so they're not really, um, it's not like a book chapter.
0: How did you know when it was done? Was that up to the editors to say like, okay, again, we, we, you, you've got a book now, you've done it. Uh, I you know, it. I could
1: I could have carried on editing mm-hmm. that for like months and months and months. They so had to be like, okay, this is it, stop, yeah. you know, because you could keep going because that's, that's, that's just, I just they we just stopped like it's not done we just mm. it had to get published at some point yeah. and now I've read it there's a couple of bits I'm like ah like oh I like need to change
0: that <laughs> um
1: but yeah you just there's I don't you know everything everything that you see that it could carry on it's just somebody's decided to say okay this has got to go out now mm. but it's also a very quick process like I started in January last year and it got published well I handed it in in March And also I didn't work for like three months. I didn't have any work for three months this year because like nothing was starting. And I was like absolutely terrified. I was doing lots of interviews, but I wasn't because I just come from, I was working on casualty and the industry. There's a lot of like infrastructure there that help you do that job, Mm. which is why I was able to do it. And so my learning process has been more doing the schedule and more having full control over the schedule and being completely responsible for that, which has been the big jump for me this year. So I was seen lots of interviews where they're like, oh, you seem great, but you know, you haven't done that part of the job, so we're not sure. And I was like, oh, I'm never going back here again. But I had three clear months to write. And then, you know, and then I got work, so it was
0: fine. Another similarity that strikes me between working on a film and, and writing a book, and I guess any freelance job really, is that you'll devote yourself very intensely for a period of time to that project. And then at the end of it, you're kind of released back into the wild and have to figure out, you know, what to do next. And I'm wondering how you dealt with that, you know, be it, you know, when you're working on a set, but how you dealt with it in the context of finishing this book and and, and handing it in and and, and being like, well, who who am I now?
1: Well, with work, you never think you'll work again whenever you have a gap. I'm always terrified of gaps and I seem to have a lot of them, <laughs> but not less so now. I'm working like the rest of this year, which is brilliant and hopefully, and I've got an agent now, so that helps, that really helps. But with the book, I was like bereft, absolutely grieving for it, for, like worrying over it. So I just did loads of walks in Hampstead Heath because I was like, this is what writers do. <laughs> <laughs> but I was also like, you know, really sad and I felt like almost back where I started, I felt like I was back where I started, no work, mm-hmm. like no book really. Cause no, not, you know, it always felt like I've come full circle. But actually in January, a great thing happened because I got onto the Observer's best debuts and that's like one that you get, there's like 10 spots and I was a very... They they asked for the manuscript in December when we announced it, and I was so it was a very late edition. So I think I bumped someone off. So sods to that person. But that was a really validating thing. And I like cried and was laughing for three days. Like I just I just <laughs> didn't know what my emotions were. Doing. I was so happy. So that happened. That was great. But then I was like, oh my God, what if nobody reads it? Like nobody nobody might read it. And I was like, I haven't got any work. I don't know what I'm doing. Because you know, like part of the capitalist
0: system. I was like, be productive.
1: <laughs> I like cannot deal with rest. <laughs>
0: But they have been reading it and liking it and and talking about it. Um, I saw a tweet, uh, from Desiree Akavan recommending the book. So how do, how does that feel that it's going down so well?
1: Oh, it was. It was. Uh, I was so stressed before it came out. Like the. The the six months before, you know, I was still working on it, but like the idea of it being out was terrifying to me because it's like, you know, it's a piece, it's a piece of you've made it. Like there's no place to hide, and I was like, oh my god, what if people read it? And then I was like, oh my god, what if people don't read it? And then it was just like it terrified me either way, not reading it or reading it. And then you know, and then you put, you don't know because things come out. You can, it's just like with making making uh, TV and making films or whatever you could be having a great time as the crew, but then it kind of goes out into the world and you're like, oh my God, but we had so much fun making that and like nothing happened to it. Mm. And you just don't know how things are going to be received. You don't know what the conversation is going to be at the time of the mood. Like, so, you know, our politics is like so intense right now. Like it just, you just don't know. You can't anticipate it. And I was like, this little thing, like, this is my whole world. And I'm putting it out to the big world where it's just like a book, you know? And I was like, oh. but it's, I just didn't expect it to be getting the reception that it did. I can't quite believe it even now. I'm like, someone's going to turn around and say it's a joke and be like, ha to taking it all back. <laughs> <laughs> As I do, I'm worried about that, but I'm, so I'm trying not, I'm finding it hard to believe But it's been out a month. We've already sold like 2,000.
0: That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank
1: you. It's not bad for a little press. Yeah, and then I got a foils window, which was really lovely. Got window and foils, which I cried, obviously, when I saw that. And the girl was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, it's it's my book. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and then like a Guardian review and Observer review. So it's all been really, it's all been Mm -hmm. really lush. And then to get messages from like these, I get these very intense love letters from women and I just love that it's yeah. just really nice like to you know to have made something that sort of speaks to that you know when it's the greatest thing I think when you make something that people didn't know that they needed I think and, and that they want like that like I've made stuff I've made you know that first that first book that we made we were pushing that book onto people but this I'm not pushing it onto anyone it's it's a, it's a different energy. It's people coming to me to, to have, you know, to want to know about Mm -hmm. it, to read about it. So I I definitely know what it's like to be on the outside being like, take this thing that I made. So I I absolutely know what a special feeling this is. And I've always Wanted to make something that that has this kind of response. Really,
0: is the view to keep up both of these things moving forward? You know, the film and TV side of your career as well as the writing side of it.
1: I think so. Like, I love the industry so wholeheartedly. I love, you know, I I mean, I really, I don't even really feel a part of it. I feel like I'm just like in the edges, trying to get in. Still, I always feel like that. But it's, mm. I don't feel like I'm inside of it yet. Like, I feel like when I start doing the big jobs, then maybe I I will. But I'm not. I'm not doing the big jobs at the minute. I'm doing a very lovely job at the moment, but. Yeah, yeah, it would be nice to keep doing the two things because it's taught me so much, I think. And also I was a, I'm a, I was a very anxious, very, very anxious. I am a very anxious person and wouldn't trust my own decision-making. And ADing has completely revolutionized that for me where I would have to trust my own decision. I was making, I'm making decisions every minute, like every 30 seconds I'm making a decision. And that sort of built self-trust for me that I do know what I'm doing. And that knowing what I was doing at work then helped me build that in my personal relationships and, mm. you know, just as me as a person. And also the confidence to like get up on stage like first things, basically performing, just like being a teacher as a performer, mm-hmm. really. We have to keep an audience engaged and, you know, you have to kind of, you know, I do like to entertain. So I kind of like, <laughs> to entertain as a first but it's kind of i like everybody having a really I like having a good time but also take the seriousness of our job but also know that you know you do need a laugh like just to relieve the anxiety sometimes but also when it's very very serious you need to take it seriously and i think that kind of being able to hold a crowd's attention has helped me performing as has performing helped me with firsting. So it's uh, weird. You would never put those two things together. I would never put those two things together, mm-hmm. but actually there's so much resonance between the two of them that, yeah, it would be lovely to carry on doing, carrying on doing them both. And it's very interesting working with so much closer to directors and actors um, and watching that whole process happen and seeing, you know, how amazingly collaborative it is. And that so many people's like writing is a very solid, you know, even though I, Will and Nina were like massively involved in the book, but
0: yeah, you mostly, have to do it by yourself. You right? have to do
1: it by yourself, and it's this you, your name out there, and blah blah blah. But filmmaking is so many people, so many people don't even see on the floor,
0: Mm-mm. and you're all
1: moving together towards this one goal. So I like that. I like every like being in it together.
0: What would you say is the biggest learning curve of your career so far? Oh, so far my extensive career.
1: I'm glad I didn't give up. Like I was 20 when I said I wanted to be in the industry and I was 28 when I had my first proper job like that job in Leeds and I'm just glad I just persevered I think I just I have just persevered (laughs) and I think it's such a hard thing to break into obviously but I never took no as the final answer I know that doesn't work in all areas of life but in this area I was like Mm. I am not going to say and I would just persist and stay in contact with people because I wanted it. I wanted it more than, than the, than the nose hurt me. You know what I mean? Like it was like mm-hmm. the nose weren't enough to stop me from being a part of it. But also I think that at the, I think at the beginning when I was first thing, I was very insecure and I was, I mean, there was such crewing difficulties. That I think I had, so I was, wasn't working with like a, a team that I felt supported by in in my team, even though that producer was really supportive of me. Mm-hmm. But I think now that I feel a bit more secure, maybe I would have handled those situations a bit differently. Biggest thing that I found is that you're in charge of a department and that my mood can affect the whole team, Mm. even if I don't know that, even if it's got nothing to do with them my mood does and I've that's mm. I've had that's my biggest I can do all of the of that stuff but it was not that I'm like moody on set but I think the stress sometimes of being on set I've learned how to how to I'm learning how to internalize it and not mm. hand it down and if something's of deep importance or something's not being done right it's just remembering to take the time to just be explain it and if if it's gone wrong it's was I probably haven't communicated properly it's always like what did I do? I'm I'm just getting better at asking what did I do rather than what did someone didn't do.
0: And finally, um, what is a film or in keeping with today's literary theme, a book by a woman director or author that you would like to recommend today?
1: Oh, um, it's an old one, but I've been talking okay. about it a lot because of the book, but Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, I think has I've probably fundamentally rearranged my brain in a way that I didn't even really appreciate when I was watching that film so I think a lot of the ways I've written this book which is to put like high and low culture and what is perceived as high and low culture in the ways that he did it which is I'm just gonna make a film it's gonna be part documentary part this part that part whatever and just was like I'm just gonna make this film I think I saw how freeing that was like it it liberated my brain and I think I've brought some of that I mean a hope I brought some of that energy to the book, which is like, this is going to be whatever it is that I want it to be. And you're going to come along for the ride kind of thing. Um, so yeah, and it's such a great film. Dark as hell, but... <laughs> I mean,
0: it's not a woman director, but it's an amazing it's film. It's not a woman really, it's not a let let director.
1: <laughs> but also, but for a woman director, I'd say Kelly Reinhart. Mm, I think yeah, she's... She does. Oh my God, anything she does. If I see her name, I watch it because I think mm. she's doing such incredible things. Like she teaches, doesn't she? And then she's like, oh, I'm just going to make a film. And I think she's actually brought the like resurgence of... Western, so it's like more female lensed Westerns, mm. which, and um, Jane Campion, that film is brilliant. Mm. Like so absolutely. Central. Yeah, so central And so, but I love Westerns. I think my dad's always watched Westerns, but I mm. really like these. I've never really enjoyed them, but these yeah. Westerns, these like anxious Westerns full of like the anxiety of the 21st century, I feel, rather than that kind of like blind optimism that they're trying to hark back to, so, yeah, I really, really love that film. Um, oops. I just read Pure Colour by Sheila Hetty. I love Sheila Hetty. I haven't read that yet, but she's another oh, one that Sheila. anything she writes, I might. But it's a bit, it's very strange. I'll probably need to read it again, but I definitely was like fighting it in a way. I, mm. I didn't fight motherhood. Where can people get your book? You can go to Foils, uh, you can go to Pages of Hackney, you can also go to the Rough Trade Books website and get it direct from them and then there's like a bunch of others outside of London amazing I urge people to do that Sheena
0: thank you so much this has been such a lovely chill way to spend a Saturday morning Oh, (laughs) we enjoy speaking with you yeah Thank thank you thanks for asking me to do this Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review, and subscribe. Spread the good word, etc. I'm on Instagram at Best Girl Grip for pod-related news. In the meantime, do whatever you have to do to stay cool, and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. And-